Uh, at this point in the service, let me go ahead and invite Heather Jacobo up, and she's going to read the passage for us to help us prepare our hearts for the teaching of God's Word. Good morning. This is God's Word from the book of Proverbs. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. Don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. Thanks, Heather. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are today wrapping up a series, a short teaching series called Things That Are Hard To Do. And we've been doing this for a number of years, and it just gives us an opportunity to look at various tough topics, both biblically as well as personally. And today we are going to be dealing with the subject of habitual sin and enslaving sin and even addiction, as you probably could have guessed from our scripture reading here today. And I just want to give you a quick heads up that This wraps up this teaching series. Next week, I'm very excited because we're going to be starting our teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount, going through Jesus' most famous sermon, his most famous teaching, or or maybe a synopsis, a collection of his most well-known teachings. And uh, so I encourage you two things. Number one, I encourage you, go ahead and start reading ahead. Read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6 and beyond, the Sermon on, sorry, chapter 5 and beyond, the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, I have a request, if I could make a request of you. And this request comes by way of one of our members, Miss Danielle sitting right there. Would you consider memorizing the Beatitudes? Uh, Danielle and I had a conversation a while ago and she had gone through the Sermon on the Mount. She was really excited and she was actually showing me how the Beatitudes really serve as the foundation for the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I, a few weeks ago, started working on memorizing that. And I would just ask you, this is a request, but if you don't like the request, it's Danielle's fault. So uh, would you please consider memorizing the Sermon on the, uh, not the whole Sermon on the Mount. Actually, if you want to do that, that's awesome. You get extra credit, gold star, whatever. But uh, the, the Beatitudes section in particular would encourage you to do that. With that said, we are going to be talking today uh, in our Things That Are Hard To Do series, it's hard to stop a habitual sin. And I will just say right at the outset, this is a weighty topic. This is a massive, like just in its scope sort of topic. I need all of the help from the Holy Spirit that I can get. So will you please pray for me and I'll pray for us in our time together here as we dive into this subject for today. God, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you love us, you care about us. We thank you, Lord God, that our our deepest, most weighty problems have all found their solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have called us into your family. Lord, if there's anyone here today in person or online that doesn't yet know you, I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to draw them to you. God, I ask that for your help, that you would guide my words and direct my speech. I only want to say that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray that you would give us all hearts uh, to experience the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name today. Amen. So I realized recently that it is almost 15 years ago 
this fall, this November, 15 years ago, was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. So 15 years ago, I still lived in Alaska. My wife and my wife and I lived in Alaska, and we would come to Seattle every year because her mom lives in. Does anyone know where Bonnie Lake is? You guys know where Bonnie Lake? Is? It's like down South Sound, Tacoma, uh, kind of near Sumner, Puyallup, that area. So every year we'd tell our friends, "Well, we're going to go to Seattle. We weren't going to Seattle. We we're going to Bonnie Lake uh, to visit my mother-in-law." And we had a Thanksgiving trip 15 years ago. We spent the Thanksgiving weekend with her uh, with her mom, and then because we used to do things like this before we lived in Seattle, we bought tickets to a sea. Seahawks game. If I was going to buy tickets to a Seahawks game right now, I'd have to sell one of my vehicles and, and, you know, babysit on the weekends or something like that. But we bought tickets to a Seahawks game and we went to a Seahawks game. It was the Green Bay Packers in town. It was Brett Favre's last season with the Packers before he changed his mind 400 more times about what team he wanted to play for. And it was this epic snow game. Does anyone remember this game? The, the, Packers at the Seahawks. Do we have a whole room full of people that have never watched a football game? Is this like the wrong sermon illustration to open with? Okay, well, moving on beyond the football game. The football game was exciting. It was, it was very fun. And then we had to leave the football game. We had to leave Soto, downtown Seattle, because the plan was to drive back home, pack up all of our stuff, and then drive back to SeaTac for a flight home to Anchorage at seven the next morning. We left the stadium. It was Quest Field at the time, I believe, right? Yeah, Quest Field at the time. We left the stadium a little bit after 10 o'clock. We never made it to Bonnie Lake because I didn't know that people in Seattle don't know how to drive when it snows. And it was a gridlock. It was an absolute nightmare. I'm sitting there, this, this, prideful Alaska dude, like, what is wrong with everybody? Like, in Alaska, the moment that the snow starts to fall, there's people out. Joyce, you know what I'm talking about. There's people who are, like, out with, like, snow graters, and they've got sanding machines. People in Seattle were still looking for the keys. They didn't even know where the snow grater was. So it was, like, wall-to-wall traffic. We're just stuck. We never made it. We never made it to Bonnie Lake. My mother-in-law had to pack up all of the kids and, and like, meet us partway. We abandoned the car in a jack-in-the-box parking lot, and she drove us up to SeaTac and we had to sprint like the people in Home Alone through the airport. We sat down on the plane like as they slammed the door. My wife slept for a lot of that time on I-5 while I sat there just, the babies, the kids, they were babies and they slept and then it was sat down on the airplane like seven in the morning and everyone's like awake and I'm like, I'd love to sleep but I've got a toddler dancing on my lap. That was a terrible night. My emotions are getting the best of me right now. Here's the point. Here's the point. At one point, I was sitting there on on I-5 and I'm just frustrated, out of my mind. Like, why aren't we moving? Why is nothing moving? And so I got out of the car on I-5. I don't recommend it, but I did that. I got out of my car, started walking, and I'm looking like, what is the problem here? And I, I got like four, five, six cars up ahead, and I could see that there was one car trying to hit an off-ramp, but they were doing that thing that people who don't drive in snow are so wont to do, where they just floored the accelerator and just sat there and spinning. Just, I'm like, oh, this is why I've been sitting in one place for 45 minutes, because this car is just spinning. And I looked, and there's like five, six other cars. You know, in Alaska, the people are like, we better get out and help, because they might die in the snow. But in Seattle, it's like, we'll just sit here and see what happens. Like, ah. So I started knocking on people. who was like, come on, come on. We got five people. We pushed the car. They got going and we all started moving again. And I sat back down in my car filled with a hot burning rage for which I needed to repent. Apparently I still need to repent because it's stirring some things up in me. Here's the point. Everybody was stuck and it was one of the worst feelings. Nobody likes being stuck. 
Not in your car, not in your finances, not in your life, not in your choices. Nobody here likes that feeling of saying, why this again? Seriously, I'm here again. I did that thing again. I, I can't get past this thing. That feeling is incredibly frustrating to sit there and look yourself in the mirror and say, I know better. I should have done better. I shouldn't have done that thing again. And it's not a new problem. It's not a new feeling. We, we read through it a little bit in our confession of need, but from Romans 7, the apostle Paul, he, he talks about this. It's a famous passage in Romans 7 where he says, we know that the law is spiritual. Like the law from God is this good thing, he says, but I am of the flesh. He says, I'm sold as a slave under sin. And that idea of slavery, you know, slavery in the ancient world was quite different in, in many ways from slavery in the United States of America. They're not, they're not um, apples to apples. But the one thing that is the same is that you didn't belong to yourself. You didn't have freedom to just go where you want to go. And so Paul is using this imagery, this metaphor of slavery. It's like, I just feel stuck. I, I want to do things. I, I want to not do things. And I'm just stuck for I don't understand what I'm doing because I, I don't even practice what I want to do, but I do these things that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, well, I agree with the law that it's good. So now I am no longer the one doing it. But listen, but it's the sin living in me. Can anyone relate to that feeling of like, I'm trying to do this thing, but there's like this parasite within me. There's this, there's this invading force that, that turns me to the left and turns me to the right. Anybody uh, relate to that feeling at times? Who's really in control here, me or, or something else? He says, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it but it is the sin that lives in me. Listen to even that personification. It's like this, it's like this, this monster, this, this parasite. Like I'm just, the, I'm just the host and it's the one actually steering the ship. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I really do delight in God's law. I want to do what God says, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I think Paul is, I mean, this is a theologically extremely dense passage, but we can see the overarching point. I feel stuck. I want to stop doing these things. I want to do these other things, and I just can't figure out why I can't do it. Show of hands. Anyone ever felt that way? Anybody? Such a common experience. Now, we do have to talk about sin. Paul is talking, he uses this phrase, sin living in me, sin living in me, the law of sin within me, sin reigning in my body. And when we think about sin, we need to remember that sin has this progression. Sin has a progression. We actually can read this in the apostle James, Jesus' uh, brother who writes about this. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But he says this, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by whose evil desire? His own. You have never committed a sin that you didn't want to commit. Never, not once. Something in you 
Something broken, something flawed has always wanted every single sin that you've ever committed. But he says, look, it starts out small, but then after desire has conceived, like this imagery of childbirth, it grows in utero and it gives birth to this full-fledged sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. What the apostle James is saying is if you give sin an inch, it will take a mile and so much more. Sin is never satisfied. Sin is never, its appetite is never satiated. It always wants more, more, and more. And we do have to recognize, like, along that continuum, there's kind of a range, right? There's a range. When we talk about sin, sometimes we're talking about just the common stumbles that we all struggle with, right? It's actually James himself, Apostle James says, we all stumble in many ways. Can I get an amen from anybody in the church on that, okay? We all stumble. There's just things that we do. Or, or the Apostle John in 1 John 5, he talks about, you know, there's, there's different types of sin. He goes, there is some sin that leads just directly to death. And he goes, there's other sin that doesn't lead to death. And it's a little bit confusing exactly what he's meaning there. But, but basically, like, there's just, there's just flaws that's just common to humanity. We all stumble in many ways. We all struggle. We all fall short. But there are times when those stumbles become more than just stumbles. They actually become a defining pattern in our lives. Something that's more than just, oh, I messed up. But it's something like, oh, I really, I really go into this ditch easily. I really, uh, you know, there's some well-worn ruts in this dirt road. And I can go into that pretty quickly. In 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul lists out this, this kind of list of sinful behaviors that defines people. And he says, this is how you used to be. He says things like sexual immorality or or idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, uh, verbal abuse, or swindlers. He says, you used to be like this. This used to be the kinds of things that would define your life, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But then we recognize even further, sometimes when we're talking about sin, yes, common stumbles, a life-defining pattern, all the way up to just full-on enslavement. Cannot stop, cannot break free, no matter how hard I try. And it's there that we, we find these words in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 <clears throat> It's interesting because it highlights, again, this is a 3,000-year-old book of wisdom. Nothing new under the sun. Some of the same, same problems we're still dealing with. It's work, it's wine, it's women, and it's food. I couldn't think of a fourth W. I was really racking my brain. But it's, it's some of the same sorts of things that we still see present. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it's an illustrative list. Look at, look at the first one with me in, in, in verse 1 being enslaved by food. It says, when you sit down to dine with a ruler, carefully consider what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you have a big appetite. Yikes. Don't desire his choice food for that food is deceptive. If you jump down to verse 20, don't associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. And it's a tough thing to talk about because on the one hand, we need food to live. Do we not? We need food to live. But like, can we just get real 
How many of you have ever run to food as a comfort that you should have received from God? Anybody? It's also really uncomfortable to talk about because um, gluttony and, and overeating and all that stuff becomes one of those things that you can look at people and make judgments and make, make assessments with them. And I just want to make sure I say very clearly, not everyone is supposed to have the, the, the BMI of a, of a marathon runner or something like that. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big... Uh, proponent of the idea of, you know, not shaming people for having different body types, etc. But we all know that it doesn't matter what your body type is. There are times when we run to food instead of running to Jesus. And it's one of the things about fasting that always kind of, I remember early on in my, in my like young adult life and doing fasting where I'm like, I'm not even all that hungry. I just want buffalo wings. Like I just, all I can think about is you know, a cheeseburger. I want the taste of the food. It's not that I'm even all that particularly hungry. So food can be one of those things that we are enslaved by. Similarly, work. Verse four, don't wear yourself out to get rich. You know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, riches, money, it disappears. For it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Again, similarly to food, work is one of the things we all need to work. We all need to work. It's a good thing. By the way, work is not a bad thing, right? Work did not appear after the fall of man. God created the man and the woman, placed them in the garden and said, what? Work the ground. But how many of you have found yourself unable to say no? Unable to stop working. It's interesting that word stop there in the Hebrew is uh, the, it's, a, it's related to the same word that we use for Sabbath, for Sabbath rest. Stop working. Take a day off. Turn off your email. Well, just one more. Oh, there's always just a little bit more. And it's in the pursuit of riches or sometimes in the pursuit of something else like identity or status. We're all the rich, by the way. Anybody here own a cell phone? You're in the small, some of you are taking notes on your cell phones right now. You're in the smallest percentage of the wealthiest people that have ever existed in the history of humankind. And yet we feel like, I just need more, just a little bit more. There's always someone richer. I saw that Jeff Bezos got passed up as the world's richest man recently by a, a guy who owns luxury hotels and resorts. hundreds of billions of dollars. Like we don't, I mean, us plebs, we can't even comprehend that kind of wealth and that kind of money. Someone's always chasing someone else. Work, a good gift from God, can become an enslavement. Number three, sex. Verse 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, and a wayward woman is a narrow well. Indeed, she sets an ambush like a robber and increases the number of unfaithful people. Now, Solomon here is using an analogy for sexual temptation and sexual enslavement that is, uh, particularly in the ancient world, the most common. A man going to a certain part of town to find a certain type of woman. I want to say two things about that. Number one, Women are not responsible for men's sexual temptation or sin. We already read in the book of James, each one is responsible for their own desires of their own heart. 
So even as Solomon is using this analogy, using this metaphor, he is not placing the blame on women for men's sexual temptation. In fact, he is instructing the son to do better, to, to be wise, to understand that there will always be temptations in the world, and it is up to you to walk in a manner worthy of the God that we serve. But also, 3,000 years ago, when these words were written, sexual sin was a little bit more challenging. You had to go to a certain part of town. You had to find a certain type of person. Nowadays, we have access to a harem much larger than Solomon's, all in the pocket of our genes. And in our culture, even 10 years ago, language of things like sexual addiction would get scoffed at. I can't remember which celebrity, but one, some celebrity went to a rehab for sexual addiction. And yet now, even, even just a few short years later, science and psychology are coming around to say, oh, it is, it is absolutely as powerful of a drug as amphetamines. And now we live in a culture that has pornographied everything. You can't watch an advertisement for a car or a cheeseburger without seeing the influence and the effects of pornography. It is ubiquitous. It is damnable. It is harmful to both men and women. And oftentimes, this is one of the ones that is maybe more often something that men struggle with, but ever increasingly women struggle with pornography as well. And there is still maybe the added stigma for women to say, oh, I'm struggling with sexual sin or pornography or things like that. There's maybe an extra shame heaped on there to say as as a woman to have to say that out loud. And it's so heartbreaking because this is one of these incredible good gifts from God. God gave the gift of sexuality to humankind the most pleasurable thing in all of human existence to create new image bearers of God. And it is perverted and it is twisted and it is turned into something that is used for selfish purposes and it's enslaving. Number four, wine. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? And maybe we can expand this, not just to wine, not just alcohol, but substances overall. Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine. Those who go looking for mixed wine. That's the poetry of this, by the way. It's pretty remarkable. Don't gaze at wine because it's red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast, just like, whoa, that wobbly feeling. You'll say things like, they struck me, but I didn't feel anything. They beat me, but I didn't even know it. When will I wake up? Can't wait to go look for another drink. You know, this is the same Solomon who also wrote, that wine is a gift from God to make merry the hearts of men. The Bible speaks positively in a number of places about alcohol. Uh, you think about uh, in, uh, in Proverbs 
31 actually says, give wine to the one who is perishing, like a medicinal sort of use, or Paul to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, you could say maybe principally to expand that to other medicines and things, but, but that feeling we get of escape, to, to, to run away from the pain that we're feeling, substances offer us freedom. They don't give it. Last, um, a few months ago, we were meeting with a church in, near Oregon City in, in Oregon, and uh, I was talking with one of their elders. His, his day job is he works for Teen Challenge. And Teen Challenge, they need to change their name because they don't just do stuff for teens. They actually have programs for adults and, and uh, he works in a lot of addiction recovery stuff. And he said that this whole pandemic work from home Zoom thing, he said it's an alcoholic's dream because people can join their Zoom calls with their travel mug. They don't have coffee or water in there. I do have water in here. I should have clarified. <laughs> but, sorry, I realized the awkwardness of that as I said that. But, <laughs> you know, alcohol sales during this whole shutdown have skyrocketed because everyone was stuck at home and looking for some escape, looking for some freedom. And again, good gift from God. The Bible talks about having the choicest of wines at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I heard it said once that, that the world drinks to forget, but Christians should drink to remember. Even when we go to the Lord's table. The tragedy is all of these things, work and, and wine and sexuality and food are, are all good gifts from God, but these good gifts from God make terrible idols. They make terrible idols. And you guys, we could substitute a lot of other things in here. These are the big ones. Shopping. Uh, your physical appearance for, you know, maybe for some women, it's, it's makeup, hair, beauty. For some men, hair, clothing, the gym, fitness. Now, it really does raise an important question because especially here in Proverbs, like you contrast Proverbs versus Romans. Romans, Paul is talking like, I just feel enslaved by it. I can't do anything. Here in Proverbs, Solomon is saying like, hey, knock these things off. Engage your will. Make different choices. And it raises this question, which one is it? Is it, is it like something I need to choose? Or is it more like, a, like a, a disease that I have that I can't choose? And in our current cultural climate, we have, particularly in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, we have thought of and we've referred to things like alcohol, uh, alcoholism and other enslaving behaviors like a disease. It makes me think of Mitch Hedberg, the stand-up comic. He had a line that says, alcoholism is a disease, but it's the only one you can get yelled at for having. <laughs> like, hey, you have lupus. Like, that just is not nice. You don't do that, but stop being an alcoholic. But it raises a really important question. You know, we look at this word drunkard in the Bible. Is that the same thing as a, a modern definition of an alcoholic? Ed Welch, who's a biblical counselor and a PhD in psychology, he wrote a really helpful book called Addictions, Banquet in the Grave, and I've linked to it up on our church's website on the sermon page. But he writes this, he says, is there a difference between a drunkard and alcoholic? Scientifically, no. There are no medical tests or brain scans that distinguish them, and their behaviors are identical. Both terms refer to those who have been repeatedly intoxicated and show a loss of self-control with alcohol. So how do we reconcile the out-of-control nature of addictions and the apparently self-conscious intentional nature of sin? The two seem incompatible with each other and categorically different. 
Therefore, we opt for the only model available. Addictions are diseases. There seem to be no other choices. But the disease model doesn't fit as well as we might think. The cravings and desires at the core of an addictive experience are not quite the same as an invading virus. If you catch a virus, you have no choice. You don't want it, and you would be glad to get rid of it. Heavy drinking, however, doesn't just happen to us. Instead, the drinker feels there are payoffs, however temporary, to drunkenness. Kind of a tough thing there. When we look in the Bible... We often talk about sin as a choice of the will. John chapter 9, Jesus said, if you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. What he's saying is is there's a a consciousness, there's a willfulness to sin. Once you see what it is and you choose to do it, like your sin is on you. Again, can we be honest here? Raise your hand if you have ever knowingly chosen to do something that you knew you shouldn't do. Anybody? Anybody? Right. And for us as Christians, and, and particularly for us who, who like, we want to take the scriptures seriously, we want to call people to living a life of faithfulness in Jesus, we will often talk about sin in this choice of the will type of thing, the, the Proverbs 23 sort of lane. But what about this other lane, this Romans 7 lane? What about the words of Jesus in John 8 when he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin? Is that also a valid way to talk about sin? And the answer is, is sin a choice of the will or is sin an enslaving force? that takes us over. What's the answer, church family? Yes. Ed Welch says it again. He goes on. He says, sin is more than just our conscious choices. Like a cruel taskmaster, sin victimizes and controls us. It captures and overtakes us. In fact, there are times when we intend to do one thing, but sin causes us to do things we don't want to do. Even though we may really want to change, it can seem like an overwhelming or impossible task to actually do so. Feel as helpless as I did on I-5 that night after the football game. In other words, sin feels exactly like a disease. It feels as if something outside ourselves has taken over. In fact, one of scripture's images for sin is disease. Since sin is a broad category that includes both self-conscious disobedience and victimizing slavery, find addiction on the side that emphasizes slavery. I'll just, I'll summarize it this way. Sin is a promise of freedom that actually takes freedom away. Sin promises you freedom But actually, choice by choice just keeps adding a link to the chain. I remember um, there's a ministry that we work with and partner with in Mexico. Uh, And I went there when I was 17 years old, actually. I I have experience before Sound City with this this spot in Mexico. And the... um, the mission there, they do ministry to all of these worker camps. And what the worker camps do, these rich farmers, these rich plantation owners, they go down to South Mexico and they have told uh, people of the Oaxacan Indians, Oaxacan natives, hey, we'll, we'll take you up. We'll give you a house. We'll give you a job. We'll give you money. You can live there. You can work there. And when the people arrive to work, they're given a tin shack and almost no food and very little money, and they're stuck. They, they were promised freedom, and then they're just stuck. Their sin is like that. And every time 
we say yes to sin, we're just giving it another link of chain to tie us up. The good news is, though, friends, freedom is possible in Jesus. Freedom is possible in the Savior. Something interesting that I have observed, particularly among those who are younger, let's say college age and below, a new cultural trend that says change not only may not be possible, it may not even be desirable. It's an interesting thing I've noticed recently. This is just how I am. This is just what I struggle with. And you have to accept it. I'm probably just going to have this for the rest of my life. So don't try to change me. Don't try to fix me. Just accept me. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, we, we've limited the number of behaviors that we should just accept. Because we don't accept arson. Okay? Like, well, I'm sorry. I just, this is just who I am. I just light other people's stuff on fire. Like, cool. We're going to stop you. Okay? Secondly, it's fatalistic. It's subhuman. To just say, I, I am my malady, I am my addiction, I am my brokenness, I am my whatever, is subhuman. And number three, it rejects the wisdom of literally all time. To say that though we are broken and fallen, there can be improvement, there can be growth, there can be change. Freedom is possible in Jesus But it requires three things. I'm going to put these three things before you. Three things that, that change requires. The first one is it requires, it requires behavior modification. The second thing it requires is communal accountability. And the third thing that we really need more than anything else is we need heart transformation. Behavior modification, cultural, sorry, communal accountability, and heart transformation. Listen, I want to take these in reverse order. Because when it comes to breaking free from addiction, most people start with point number one. How do we change your behavior? Or if people are really trying to be deep, they start with point number two. How do we get people around you that can hold you accountable? Friends, I am of the opinion that lasting change and lasting freedom is only found truly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can get to community and we can get to changing your behavior. But before we do any of that, we have to talk about transformation of the heart. Go back to Proverbs 23, verse 15. He says, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will indeed rejoice. I want you to have a transformed, wise heart. How is that going to happen? He says, my innermost being will celebrate when your lips say what is right. Verse 17, don't let your heart envy sinners. Instead, he says, always fear the Lord. Then you will have a future and your hope will not be dashed. Solomon is saying to his son, listen, you want to avoid all of these traps that I've told you about, overworking, over drinking, sleeping around, all of these things. He says, you need to have a heart that fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all of this wisdom. It's a heart that says, God, you are God and I am not. You know better and I have strayed. Forgive me, accept me. Lord, would you please transform me from the the inside out. And friends, you and I living after the cross of Jesus, we now know that to fear the Lord means to surrender our lives to the Son of God, crucified and resurrected on our behalf. That is what it means to fear the Lord. 
Think about this. We, we, we as Christians, we make this claim that Jesus lived a sinless life. The, the apostles who wrote the pages of the New Testament said that he was like a lamb without blemish or spot. No deceit was ever found in him. Jesus himself stood up and said, who of you can accuse me of sin? Can you just, can you just let that blow your mind for a moment? We've, we've been talking about all these things that trip us up, the common stumbles and the enslaving sins, and Jesus did none of it? <laughs> Does that just blow your mind? Like, we're so used to total depravity, it's hard to even wrap our brains around the fact that Jesus lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. And if you don't believe in total depravity, I would like to invite you to serve in our nursery next Sunday. Because you will see that no one ever has to teach a toddler to say the word mine, okay? They just come kind of hardwired. They figure that one out on their own. 10 out of 10. One time I went to the, I remember uh, being at the airport, it was at SeaTac Airport, and somebody in like Michigan drove a forklift into a wire that cut communication for like airports all across the country. And I remember just watching like grown adult men and women, business professionals, screaming and losing their absolute minds at the airport. I'm like, I want to record this and I want to show this to anyone who says they don't believe in the depravity of man. I'm like, look, your flight is going to be late. I'm sorry, you don't get to Cabo San Lucas as early as you wanted to go. Jesus did none of that. Jesus would would stand out in SeaTac Airport. Our Savior lived this perfect life. And he died on the cross to not only pay the penalty for our sinful choices, but to break us free from sin's enslaving power. He did both things on the cross, amen? And he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave to say, now I offer you this new life and this new freedom John chapter 8, Jesus said, Look, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son or a daughter does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. This is the hope of the gospel, friends. That Jesus died to overthrow the grave, rose again to give us the hope of freedom and new life. And that language of household is so important because, yes, Jesus saves us into a family, which leads me back to point two about communal accountability. We really do need other people in our lives to help us break free, do we not? I mean, this is why, uh, you know, accountability groups and 12-step programs and all that kind of stuff, they're just doing what the Bible says to do. First John chapter 1 says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have to, we can't say we have no sin. We're deceiving ourselves if we do that. We have to be honest with ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see all three there. You have to admit to yourself that you got a problem. You have to admit to God that you have a problem. But maybe the most difficult one of all, you have to admit to other people. I don't know, is that just me? But maybe that's like the scariest one of all. To look somebody else in the eye. 
You know, maybe for us, God is distant somewhere and so we can pray a prayer, but, but looking somebody in the eye and having to confess sin to them, or, or maybe you're afraid of judgment or, or, or a harsh word back, whatever it might be, but we're invited into freedom in Christ Jesus through the community of faith and the people around us. And my hope and my prayer is that Sound City Bible Church would always be the kind of church that would not be shocked or disgusted when people confess their sins. Because if Jesus knew about those sins and chose to go to the cross to die to redeem uh, them. Even if we're surprised, we don't have to be shocked. We can love like Jesus. And then lastly, number three, yes, changed behavior. We have to change our behavior. We do have to take responsibility and say, I don't want to live like this anymore. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, this, this line, he says, look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So let me offer you some discipline, some things that we can do as followers of Jesus, saved by his grace, filled with the spirit, surrounded by community. Let me offer you a few things that you can do, whether it's to try to break free from uh, an enslaving behavior or to make sure that you are not sliding into an enslaving behavior. So when it comes to food, the Lord has given us the practice of fasting, has he not? Now we talk about fasting, all sorts of other things. I'm fasting from social media. I'm fasting from TV. I'm fasting from sugar or chocolate or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with any of those, but true fasting, true fasting, taking a day where you don't eat food, taking a few days where you don't eat food. It is remarkable the spiritual power of something so physical. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the father. So when we practice fasting, we are saying to food, you are not the God of me. And I could say this could expand out to other things, right? This could expand out to caffeine. This could expand out to sugar. Sugar is a drug. My goodness. What about for work? If only God had given us a practice for work. Oh, he did. Sabbath. Sabbath, whatever your job is, don't do it for a 24-hour period and instead delight yourself in the Lord and in your family and in your friends and the people around you and tell your email that it can go jump in a lake. That your work is not the boss of you. That your inbox is not the boss of you. That money is not your God. Sabbath is a gift from the Lord. When we get into the, the Sermon on the Mount, I hope to spend a little bit more time on Sabbathing to, to give you some practical things that I've discovered over the last year that have been extremely helpful for me. These ones are necessary. This is for all of us. We all have to eat. We all have to work. These are the necessary disciplines. There are, though, some, some ones that are more personal, the more personal nature on the categories of alcohol and, and sex. So let me just offer a couple of quick things. On alcohol, you really have the options of moderation or abstinence. You can go your entire life without drinking alcohol and live a good, wonderful, amazing, solid life. Some of you have the freedom in your conscience to enjoy alcoholic beverages or uh, 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 you know, to, 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 to feast with them, to enjoy them like we talked about. But it must be done in moderation, and it must be done in the light, and it must be done in the context of community. 
I applaud those of you who have said, you know what, for my own well-being of my own soul, I can't even go there. Praise Jesus. You should not feel ashamed, particularly in an environment like Seattle where alcohol is so ubiquitous. We praise God for you and those choices you've made. For others, you've said, no, I do have that freedom. I do have that enjoyment. Then it must be done in moderation. And I would even encourage you periods of abstinence. Fasting from that. I will not be mastered by anything. And then lastly, for sex. The choices there are enjoying the gift of intimacy in the context of marriage or celibacy. The Apostle Paul wrote, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. So no, no pornography, no hookups, no one-night stands, no friends with benefits, none of it. To those of you who are married, uh, the Apostle Paul even recommends in 1 Corinthians 7 actually doing intentional times of abstaining from sexual intimacy for the purpose of devoting yourselves to prayer. And that's a good thing. For those of you who are unmarried and seeking to follow God's will and living a celibate life, we commend you. And I am so sorry that we live in this culture that tells you that you are somehow less than human if you haven't found your ideal sexual partner. That is a, that is a damnable falsehood that gets propagated. And I would also even just like to say, forgive us in the church when we have elevated marriage to a higher place than it should be. Because one day, Jesus said, we're all going to be like the angels not given in marriage. And our Savior Jesus was single. And the Apostle Paul was single. And you are not somehow subhuman. But live out that celibacy in a Christ-honoring sort of way. Let me just close. I'm sorry, I've I've done it again. I've gone over my time. It's a heavy topic. It's a weighty topic. And I feel like I've only just scratched the surface on all that I could say. So let me just close by saying this. Change is possible in Jesus. We've, we've covered a lot of weighty things today. And we're about to come to the table of the Lord. Please do not come to the table of the Lord if you have something that is unconfessed. I want you to abstain today. But more importantly, some of you are afraid that right now as we go to respond to Jesus at the table or in singing, that Jesus is standing there with his arms folded, his brow furrowed, and a scowl on his face. And friends, I'm here to tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth. That Jesus stands with his arms open wide to embrace you like the father to the rebellious son, the prodigal son, that Jesus has tears pouring down his face. He says, I already knew before I ever went to the cross what you were going to do and just how stuck you were going to be. I do not reject you. I do not shame you. I embrace you and I change you and I set you free to live a life that honors me. That's what Jesus is saying to you today. The word of God says, a broken heart and a contrite or a humble spirit, he has never once denied. So our posture now is to come with humility, to believe the gospel. Jesus loves us. He paid the price for our sins and he broke the chains that enslave us. So let's run to Jesus now.
God, I pray that as we come to the table and as we prepare to sing, I pray that we would come right now to drink deeply of your grace. That we would not see you standing in judgment of us, but we would see you as the one who took our judgment on the cross to offer us the freedom that you yourself live in. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being willing to live a perfect life and die and rise again for us. And Spirit, would you stir our hearts now to live out the freedom that we're offered through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.